I feel that, I don't know, it's something we can overlook um, sometimes. We can overlook uh, the poor, we can overlook uh, these people we don't really sort of hear too much about. So I want to I wanna rectify that. I want to talk about that today. So let us pray. Dear Father, Lord, uh, it is a great honor to come before you. Um, it's an honor to know that you look at each and every one of us and you value us so much. Uh, you see great promise. You see unbelievable things that can be done through each one of us as individuals. And even collectively, Lord, we can do so much greater. Uh, Lord, we pray. We pray, for, we pray for this service. We prayed for this service this morning, and it, and it has been wonderful. It's been moving. Uh, but I, I want to pray at this point for the words that will uh, flow out of my mouth, that they will not be my words, but they will be your words. They will be the words that the Spirit compels me to say. Um, and I thank you uh, for the opportunity to share this message. So I pray. Amen. Title, title. Um, the title for today is Love Your Neighbor. It sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Love Your Neighbor. Uh, we're going to start off uh, with Luke uh, chapter 10. And we're going to read from verse 25 through to 29. So that's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through to 29. I've always wondered about neighbours, not just the program that was on television. They don't really seem that neighbourly, most of them. Um, but I've always wondered about this word neighbour, what, you know, where does it come from? You know, what we use it, but really do we understand what it, what it means? So I'm hoping that, uh, that today we'll learn a little bit more about who our neighbour is. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? The man said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? We see here this Jewish lawyer, for a better term, asked Jesus this question. What must I do to get eternal life? And I think this is a question that many people ask today. They have this feeling that there is something else, there's something more. What must I do to get that? They saw, they felt, they, they heard the truth from Jesus. Something that was sort of nagging inside them lagging inside of this sort of Jewish lawyer. It was something different. 
they were doing everything they could, uh, sort of religiously. Well, this chap was doing everything he could by, by the law. But he knew there was something else. And you get this sense that there's some desperation in his words. What must I do? I've tried everything I know, but something is just lacking. There must be more than this. There must be more than keeping the rules or doing my best. After all, there were over 600 uh, rules that were uh, common to the, uh, to the Jews at the time. There must be something more. How do I get it? So the conversation goes on. And he thinks, but it sounds pretty simple. Um, you know, you've got to just do these two things and, and that's what it is. But it wasn't that simple for him. First, love God with everything you have. And secondly, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. I guess he must have been thinking, I love myself quite a bit. What does that mean? <laughs> and some people, I think, get this idea that it's, it's a sin to love yourself. It's not a sin to love yourself. We're made in God's image. God loves us. God believes in us. To love yourself is to sort of really sort of look for those needs and meet those needs. So, like most things, it seems relatively simple to start off with. It seems pretty easy to understand, but inevitably it's quite hard to do. I think this lawyer started to feel a little bit silly. I mean, it says, but he wanted to justify himself. He kind of thought, well, there's got to be more. Uh, I'm starting to look a bit stupid about this. So he asked another question to try and show that it was a little bit more complicated than people might imagine. Jesus answered him by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan which we'll read now in verse 30 to 37. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to a man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay. So we hear this story, this parable that Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan. So what do we get from the scripture? What's the thing that sort of comes out? Because we hear scriptures all the time. We hear stories, whether it's sort of through kids' kingdom and various places. And most people will sort of come back and say, well, it's about being good. It's about, you know, being like this good Samaritan. You know, he was kind, he was giving. We're meant to be like that. And all of that is true. And none of it is why Jesus told the story. Jesus is answering a specific question. What must I do to get eternal life? The man was probably trying to trap him. And to saying something that was going to cause some trouble. But maybe, perhaps, he was slightly intrigued. Maybe slightly desperate for that answer that Jesus was going to give. And there it was. You cannot get the eternal kind of life simply by concentrating on your relationship with God. Your relationship with others is also vitally important. You have to love your neighbors. I think this really scared him. He was a Jewish lawyer. He knew the law. He was an expert in it. You know, he recited the commandment back to Jesus. But he didn't understand it. Talk about loving God is one thing. In his mind, it may have been some sort of private thing that he did. Praying, reading the Bible, maybe meditating, definitely keeping the rules. You've got to keep the rules. It was also perhaps, you know, going, attending meetings, going to the synagogue. He was an expert of the law. He knew all these things. But he saw what Jesus was doing. And when he heard, you know, love your neighbor, and he answered correctly about who that neighbor was, something dawned on him. That also meant loving unclean people. That's not something we're meant to do as, as Jews. I've got standards. I can't lower my standard for that. I think that's what really frightened him. It was removing himself from this religious side and really sort of focusing on what God really wanted. Love your neighbor as yourself. He panicked. What, everybody? I've got to love everybody. 
surely it's got to be a mistake. Just who exactly is my neighbor? And that's why Jesus told that story to him. A man was mugged and left for dead. I don't know whether any of you here have been mugged. I I pray that you haven't. Um, But it's not a pleasant experience. I was mugged about sort of about 15, 17 years ago um, at a train station. And it's that feeling of complete loss of control. Somebody, there were two guys, approached me as I was walking up some stairs. They had a knife to my back and they sort of, they wanted my wallet. Stupid as I was, I I realized I'd taken out some money prior to sort of going to the station. I thought, I don't really want to give that money up. Uh, So I sort of tried to prevent them, but ended up uh, being a little worse for wear at the end of it. But the thing that sort of struck me in reading this story is just like this man who was left for dead. There were many people at that station, but nobody came to help me. They could see it happening, but nobody chose to get involved. So we can see this, we can see this parable, we can think, well, you know, it's quite far removed from our lives, but this is the kind of society we live in. It's a society that says, I'm going to mind myself first. You're I haven't seen it. And it was amazing looking at the faces of those people around where they turned away or even walked away. So, there's three people walking down the road. Only one sees this man on the road. The others choose to walk on by. Religious guys too busy, more important things to do, maybe the sort of guy is unclean, um, lots of people get mugged on that road, you know, you should kind of expect that sort of thing. It wouldn't really be safe to stop and get involved. Maybe he's just, you know, he's just fooling around. Uh, maybe he's just tired. Uh, I'm sure there were many things that were going on in people's minds, these guys' minds as they were walking on by. They don't see what is there. They don't stop. They don't see who is there. Then along comes this Samaritan. And these Samaritans, the Jews actually hated them. I mean, they were absolutely despised. Um, and so when Jesus is probably mentioning the Samaritan in the story, they're probably, oh, you know, he's going to be gloated over this guy on the side of the road. Probably, he's probably going to go over himself and try and see what's left to rob him, uh, rob him again. Uh, you know, they, they had no, they had nothing good to say about the Samaritan person. And yet, Jesus then sort of says, he's the guy that helped. I can't imagine what the audience must have thought at that time. Probably thought, ah, 
can't be right. There's a mistake there. You're telling the story. That doesn't make any sense. But he was the only one who did something. See, the, this lawyer, he wanted to limit the number of people he had to love. But Jesus told him about a man who loved simply because they needed love. The way to get eternal kind of life, Jesus tells him, is to be a neighbor to everyone who needs a neighbor. And that costs. It costs the Samaritan a great deal of time, a great deal of money. It's inconvenient. We're taking on responsibility. But we still have the question today of who is my neighbor? And the answer still comes back the same. Whoever needs you to be your neighbor. We still want to know the limits of our compassion. Who do we love? Who don't we love? They hurt me, they haven't hurt me. Jesus doesn't go into sort of those excuses. He just says, somebody needs help, somebody needs to be loved, that's your neighbor. As simple as that. Maybe what springs to mind is, do we have to love everybody in the church? Do we have to love our next door neighbor? The homeless person that I pass on by on my way to work. And I think there's a lot more people in our lives that we skip on by. But I want you to meet some new neighbors. These are not just the people that are next door to you or uh, people at work. These are invisible neighbors to a certain degree. You probably ate what they grew. You're probably wearing what they made. They are the 850 million people, workers around the world, that don't make enough money to live on that. Literally, they do not make enough money to live. They can't support their families, they can't pay for medicines, they don't have adequate accommodation. There is stuff, there's stuff on our doorsteps, but there's a lot of other stuff out there if we open our eyes. And I find that frightening. When Wamba shares about, you know, worldwide, it's very easy for me to sit in the back and think, that's good, you know, these people are doing something, and yeah, there's some people over in Africa, yeah, there's some people over in India, etc. But I'm a little bit removed from that situation. We do things as a church for our neighbors. It's great to see sort of the food bank 
I don't see where that food goes to, the people it goes to, but I know it's going to help people. We do things for hope worldwide. There are many of us who do good things for all the people around us. But I think it's far too easy to, to live in a completely different world to the other people. We can feel sorry for them. We can do something small, but actually connect. That is something that I believe we're missing and we need to re-engage in. The struggles of our neighbours matter to God. And He wants them to matter to us. He knows their names just like He knows our names. He knows that there's still over 250 million children working as child laborers in the world instead of going to school. He knows that a great deal of them won't actually survive to adulthood because of those working conditions. We're all sitting around here today. We're all sort of comfortable. We've all got roofs over our heads, etc. But if you just look at a label of a piece of clothing you're wearing, what does it say? It probably says something like, I don't know, you're going to wash it thirty or something like that. It probably says made in, I don't know, China or India or somewhere. But it won't tell you about that person who made the garment. It won't tell you how they were treated, the hours they worked, the wages they received, the conditions they worked in. And yet, God says we should care for these people who are put under extreme conditions. They often is the case out of sight, out of mind, and it's convenient. Look the other way is another phrase that you, you hear or even, you know, turn a blind eye. I must confess, when I start thinking about these things, I feel overwhelmed at times. It's too much. It's easy to say, oh well, I didn't know. I don't really want to know. What can I do? There's more important things. You know, I need to be evangelizing. I need to be worshipping. I need to be reading my Bible. And that's my blind spot. Because... God looks on the poor and loves them. And he commands us to do the same. And this isn't sort of a, a lecture about, well, you know, we're all bad, etc. It, it's more about, let's open our eyes to things. Let's be more engaged in sort of the poor around us. We don't see the poor in the Bible because we don't see the poor in the world. Indeed, we have never looked for them in some cases. We have presumed that the Bible is quiet on issues of poverty and justice because there is more important stuff to be done. I really love the song, Amazing Grace, that, that hymn. It says, I was once blind, but now I see. We need to open our eyes. God's heart for the poor and his passion for justice 
is often overlooked. But it's found over 800 times in the Bible. In fact, it's found once every 12 verses. And all this culminated when I've seen God come down in the flesh of Jesus to demonstrate justice, to demonstrate love and compassion, to touch us, the untouchables, to eat with the outsiders, to heal the sick, to preach the good news to the poor and to everyone. In John chapter 1 verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Our God doesn't watch from a distance, or keeps us at arm's length. He embraces us. He wants us to come into Him. He wants everybody to come into Him. So how do we love our neighbour? Well, it's pretty simple. What did Jesus do? Do what Jesus does. First thing we need to do is to reduce the distance between ourselves and the poor. There is a real danger that we can become comfortable and sheltered, surrounded by like-minded people. Pleasant surroundings, a busy job, an enjoyable lifestyle. It's just not reality for the vast majority of people out there. We're living in this cocoon. I stop and wonder and think, you know, how can I understand the poor? How can I understand these people, perhaps in foreign lands, etc.? How can I understand them? I can only understand them if I do some research on it, if I meet people. Generally, meeting people reveals a lot. If we talk honest and truthful conversations, we learn a lot from people. How many people who live below the poverty line in this country or overseas do we know by name? How many have we invited inside our homes in the last year? Or maybe ever? How many have we helped in a practical way in the last month? How many have we come into contact with this week? How many have we prayed for or with recently? How many of their homes have we stepped foot in? We need to make choices. We need to we need to look. We need to reassess our current lifestyles, our habits, to ensure we don't become distanced from the poor, because Jesus wasn't. We're all called to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. It's pretty ironic that today 
It's the people who are feeding us and clothing us. We have been given the power to do something incredible. Whether that's doing something as simple as just thinking about what you're buying. Whether it's buying fair trade or spending time with a homeless person, having a good old conversation with them to understand what's happening in their lives. Or maybe it's sort of thinking about the trips that you do. If you do go on holiday and you've got a chance that you can do, make, do something positive with it. I know that uh, Walter and Roberta are probably going to India in December to sort of spend time over there, all being well. We'll pray for them for that, with their family. But there are things we can do, just like Hope Worldwide, just as the food bank. These are things that individuals have taken the opportunity to think there is a need and doing something about it. And we applaud you for that. But we're called to do it. We're commanded to do it. It's not something, it's not saying, well, I see, you know, that's something, yeah, I'll think about it. I've got more important things. We are commanded to do that, are we not? And it all starts by doing the word in the ordinary moments and choices. Let's look at James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accomplished, accompanied by action, is dead. Good intentions, strong emotions, they just don't cut it. It's just not enough. We need to act. In James 1, verse 22, it says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And this is what we see Jesus do time and time again in the Bible. In John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. When I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with his, with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of uh, Siloam. So the man went and washed, and came home seeing. Basically, Jesus heals a blind man. It's a miracle. But let's rewind that. Let's see the ordinary choices that Jesus was faced with. The first words of the passage are, 
as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. Imagine Jesus is a pretty busy guy. Pretty well known. There's different things happening. People know he does these miracles and stuff. He's, I'd imagine he's pretty popular. Well, certainly amongst some people anyway. Um, he's probably on his way somewhere. He's thinking about things. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff going on in his mind. So what does he do? He chooses to see and not look the other way. That's the first thing. It's a choice. He's walking down. He's walking down. He sees this guy. It'd be so easy to think, um, I'll come back later. I'll sort that out later. Um, I'm passing through maybe in a week's time. Um, I'm, I'm busy. I've, I've got to get to this place. But he sees the guy. There's compassion for the guy there and then. He does something about it. There's no excuse. He just does it. He has that compassion. He doesn't see this guy as an interruption, uh, as an inconvenience, uh, as a problem, but more of a, an opportunity to demonstrate God's love yet again. The other thing Jesus does is he chooses to stop and not walk by. It's one thing to see somebody and think about that person. It's another thing to stop and to actually help. I think it's obvious that Jesus got a slightly different agenda to the agendas we have at times. We're on a way somewhere, we're doing something, it's, it's focused, our, our mind is like focused on different paths, we've got to sort of go down, and everything else is, well, I'm not really, oh, I haven't got that time, I haven't got this, oh, let me just focus on that for the time being. And I've been there myself, I've walked down the streets of Birmingham, and I've passed homeless people and haven't stopped and said hello or asked a question of them, or even given them something. I mean, I've also been on the other side where I have actually stopped and spoke to them and given them something. But it's far too often that I don't stop when I stop. And I can, I can think of excuses. Oh, I'm too busy, I'm this, that, and the other. But, but sometimes I just don't want to be inconvenienced. And that's where I'm changing. I want us all to change that way. Jesus stops because he refuses to see what the other men saw, even his disciples. Yeah, there's a sinner there. You know, uh, was he, you know, is it his parents' fault? Is it his fault? He's like that? They don't have that compassion to say, well, you know, actually this guy's blind. You know, listen, you know, can we help him? It, it's, Jesus, you know, why is he a sinner? You know, what, what's he done? We can think that at times. We can pass somebody by. I think it's pretty easy to talk about the homeless because that is probably what we see on the streets in Birmingham. We're sort of going further afield. We can. There are other things that can emerge. This guy on the street. He's not. He's not hopeless. He's a person. 
you can be saved. His full potential has not been realized when he's on the street. But God wants him to realize, him or her to realize the full potential. The other thing Jesus does is he chooses to speak out against such things. To tell the disciples that it wasn't the guy's fault. But that it's an opportunity to show God's glory. And that's how we need to see things. We need to see things as opportunities to demonstrate that we truly are followers of Jesus Christ. That there is nothing that we will not do for God. And we can say this till the cows come home, but it's until we actually do something about it that it really sinks in and people can actually see that we really are followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus chooses to act and not turn away. He chooses to, admittedly a strange thing in my mind, to sort of make a mud thing and put it in somebody's eyes. I, I can't imagine many blind people who'd wish me to do that, but um, nevertheless, he, he does something about it. It might seem something very small, but that very act change that guy's life forever. As well as physically seeing the light, spiritually saw the light as well. And that's something that we underestimate. Some of these things we, we can do can actually have a profound effect on those around us. Can actually bring people to God by what they see. We cannot underestimate that. We cannot underestimate God and what he can do. I want to share a story about um, a a a month or so ago, we went over to the States. Um, We went to stay with some disciples over there, some friends of ours. And there was a a guy in the church who was having some difficulties. He was having... um, some challenges mentally. Um, and many people go through sort of mental, sort of, uh, mental issues in their lives. It's like one in five and over the, course of, over the course of their life actually suffer from that. But what really struck me was how the brothers got together to sort of help. And I thought, well, how do we help? this brother. How do, how do we help him with this? We haven't got any experience. So, they went along to this support group. I went along with them to this support group. I was sitting in this support group, and there was about 20 other people there who were there to support people who had sort of, whether they were suffering from schizophrenia or whatever. Uh, depression, you name it, it was, it was there. And the the emotions that were sort of going around was, it was intense. It was, it was really emotional. It was, it was really draining. And one by one, we, we kind of stood up. Everybody had to sort of say why they're there, what's the purpose of this. And one by one, there was, a, there was four of us uh, from, from the church that stood up and said, we're here because there's, uh, there's a guy in the church. We want to help him. And... It was incredible 
the effect that that had. Because up until that point, nobody had gone along to the group to support somebody that they didn't know. To support somebody that was outside their family. It was only there. They were only there for their son, their daughter, their, their mother, their father. And the guy at the end, he said, it's incredible. What church do you go to? You know, that you have compassion over this guy. just going to help. We're just going to help. But that had an incredible... It moved people. People were asking, people saying, kind of details. We want to we point out about this church. There's something about it. And that's what it's about. That's what we're about. We're about doing things for God. But I'm moving people close to God. I feel really passionate about this because I thought, well, we're doing what we should be doing. But people saw something different. And that's what I want us to, I want us to, I want people to see what we do is different. What we do is special. What we do is godly. I want, I want people to see that of us. I want people to see that of me. And I know I've got a long way to do, go. I know I've got a lot to do, but I listened to my daughter when we went out a few months ago to taking things out to the homeless people. We took a Saturday morning and there's a few of us that kept, went along from, from the church. We just went out and we just did things. We just thought, well, let's just go out. Let's speak to them. Not just hand things out. Let's speak to them. And I think, you know, I'm saying that somebody on the way back, she said, you know, why can't we take him home? He's a home. I thought, the child is telling me this that God told me ages ago. And yet, there are certain things that we've got to be careful about. But there's so much more we can do. I mean, I'm encouraged by different people in church who, who do different things who are passionate about stuff and trying to help people. I probably need to tell them more often. But I'm also, there's also people outside the church who do incredibly, incredible things for people. And I think Anne's mother, I remember this instance about probably a few years ago. Where I think they were driving back, uh, Anne and her mother, and there was this guy on the side of the road. And he was in an awful pain. And she stopped. She spoke to him, whatever, and it appears like he'd broken his leg, but he couldn't go to hospital, he couldn't afford to go to hospital, so he just lay there in agony. So they brought him along to hospital. And Guy was, he had some serious mental issues, I mean, he like, he was open to attacking people and, and different things. But through that one act of kindness, through stopping, through helping, that guy's become something remarkable. Yet he's changed. From being this guy that people saw and, and thought, he's a bit of a wacko, stay well away from him, to somebody you can have a conversation with. And that came from one act of kindness. 
And there are many other acts of kindness that are out there that we sometimes we don't see, but they have incredible effects on people. It kind of reverberates around that you don't see it initially, but it, it kind of comes back to you. It is only when we realize the overwhelming extent of God's love for us that we can be free to do all these things. We've got to understand that. And I know I've preached about it before, and I'll continue to preach about it because it's important. Because as it says in the beginning, you know, you've got to understand, you've got to lo- how can you love somebody else if you don't love yourself first? And you've got to understand what that love is. You've got to understand it's come from God. He loves you to the point that he would die for you. We've got to get that in order to be able to help people around us. And we'll begin to see people differently. We won't see this homeless guy as, oh, he's possibly on drugs, or if I do this, you know, oh, he's a, he might turn on me, or he'll do that. We start to see things differently. We start to react differently. We start to see the invisible. And, as I say, it's easy to talk about some of the homeless, but also those that are overlooked around the world. We have opportunities to do this through our purchasing power. We can have an effect on other people around the world. We can change their lives. There are so many things we can do. You know, those people who are perhaps sort of socially awkward, or, you know, don't seem to fit in. Those are the people that God sees. Let's see people the way God sees people and do something. Uh, I want to finish off with, uh, it's an interpretation of Matthew 25, verse 35 to 46. It's by a homeless, it's an interpretation by a homeless woman. And it goes, I was hungry, and I formed a humanities group to, do, to discuss my hunger. I was imprisoned, and you crept off quietly to your church and prayed for my release. I was naked, and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry, unloved, and cold. You know, before you think, who are we to be in a position to help? Answer this, who are we not to? If we are disciples of Jesus, we can't or won't help and who we really follow. We must never underestimate the power that God has given us as individuals. He would not have given us the command otherwise to love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Uh, we'll just pray before um, the song leaders come up to do the song. I just want to say that if you really want to know more about this, then there's a great book and where I've used a lot of the information from that book for the sermon. It's called Lift the Label by Westlake 
and Stansfield. It's a great read. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, uh, we, we are so lucky to be here. We are so lucky to have you as our God, to love us, to care for us, to, to show us with such passion how much you, you want us to do the things that are going to sort of make our lives so much better and those around us so much better. Help us, Lord. Help us move through uh, the fears that are attached to doing things sometimes, Lord. You know, we're frightened at times of thinking, ah, we're wasting our money on something. We're frightened, Lord, of people around us. Lord, the world is full of fear, and we pray, Lord, that we can show some love. We can, we can do something to demonstrate, you know, how much we really do love you. We thank you for this time, Lord, and we pray for this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.